0: Boys and girls, maybe you have a, a special picture in your house, a painting perhaps, and you've already looked at it many times. And it seems like every time you look at it, every time you study it, you discover some details you had not seen before. This is especially true for, for famous paintings, where people can go to a museum and stand for hours and study their portrait in all of its details, in all of its beauty, in all of its hidden beauty. Congregation, this is profoundly true for the spiritual portrait that Christ paints for us in the opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Because that is what it is. It is a spiritual portrait that Christ sets before us in which He gives us the features, the main features of the Christian life, in which He sets before us who the living, real citizens of His kingdom are. As we have seen before, it's not accidental that that portrait consists of seven features. It is a perfect portrait a flawless portrait what also makes it so remarkable that this comes from the lips of Christ himself this comes from the lips of the living word that's why i've said before there is no other place in scripture that is so helpful for self-examination as this particular passage And let me emphasize again, congregation, that it is a complete portrait. It is a complete package. And so when the Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes us a new creature, all seven of these features will begin to function. We can't just pick and choose. No, they all belong together and they're all intimately connected together As we have seen, there is a a sequence in which Christ gives us those features. Each beatitude builds on the previous one, assumes the previous one, and anticipates the next one. And together they form this masterful fabric— and then the bottom line of the seventh beatitude, the bottom line of that entire portrait is that Christ says, and they shall be called the children of God. We've also explained to you that in the opening three beatitudes, Christ sets before us the inner disposition of the heart of the Christian, of the citizen of God's kingdom, the inner disposition That lifelong disposition, I don't know if you've noticed it again when you read your Bibles, that the word are is in italics. What does that mean, boys and girls? That means in the Greek, that word is not there. It's implied. And so what Christ is describing is a state of being. Christ is saying this is always true in the life of the Christian. It's true in the beginning. It's true in the middle, it's true in the end. And so the first three describe that inner disposition that results in a lifelong hungering and thirsting after Christ and His righteousness. A longing that will be fulfilled, as we will see, next week or two weeks from now, I hope to be gone next week, but that will be filled to overflowing... And that spills over into how we live. And then I explain to you that those last three, they are the reflection, the outworking of that inner disposition. And so those that are poor in spirit are also merciful. They recognize the spiritual need of others. Those who mourn over sin are also pure in heart. They desire to live a godly life. And those that are meek, the one we will focus on today, those that are meek will also be peacemakers. And so with God's help, we will then look at the third trait, the third feature, if you will, of that spiritual portrait that Christ gives us. And so our passage will be verse 5 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Again, the word blessed means supremely happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so we will look at the gracious character of the meek. What does it mean to be meek? This is a bit more difficult, and yet, hopefully, as I explained to you, you will see how masterfully Christ inserts this and what an essential feature it is of that spiritual portrait so the gracious character of the meek and secondly of course the blessed inheritance of the meek for we're told that they shall inherit the earth and so congregation i need to say right up front that we must never think of this trait this spiritual trait as something that is found in some people's character. We use the word meekness as well. But often when we use the word meekness, we mean weakness. When we think that person is as meek as a lamb, we mean to say that person is kind of a pushover. And so we we have a, a rather pejorative view of the word meekness. And we have to dispense with all of those notions entirely when we consider that word here translated as blessed are the meek. Because as is true for the previous Beatitudes, recognizing your spiritual poverty and mourning over your sinnership, this too is a mark of grace. This meekness that Christ is talking about is not found naturally in anyone. But this meekness will manifest itself as a result of the indwelling ministry of the Spirit of Christ. In other words, it is, as we find, and you can look at Galatians 5, that famous passage where we are given the fruit of the Spirit, singular. And then we have a whole list of attributes there, and meekness is one of them. So the meekness that Christ is talking about is never found naturally in man but it will ever be the evidence of the grace of God. So what does Christ mean by this word? Listen carefully. I will say it twice. So meekness is a teachable disposition of heart. Listen carefully. A teachable disposition of heart, which the result of being fully conscious of the presence of God and the majesty of His attributes. Let me repeat it. Meekness is a teachable disposition of heart, which is the result of being fully conscious of the presence of God and the majesty of His attributes. So, meekness is that disposition of a person for whom God has become real. Meekness is that disposition of a person who sees himself the way God sees him. Meekness is that disposition of a man who therefore takes his proper place before God. And therefore, meekness excludes all pride and all arrogance... One commentator makes this beautiful statement, something worth thinking about it. He says, meekness is a flower that grows on the grave of our pride. Think about that. Meekness is a flower that grows on the grave of our pride. And so what is pride, congregation? What is pride? Pride is the worship of self... Pride is that we are impressed with our own attributes, with our own accomplishments, which is the foundational sin of all men. Before Adam fell, Adam and Eve, they were preoccupied with God's attributes. They stood in awe of the God who made them. And then they believed Satan's lie, that they would be as God's. And ever since then, fallen man has become a proud creature because ultimately, as sinners, we are worshippers of ourselves. That's what pride is: the worship of self. And you see, the meek man is a man who now stands in awe of God. So this meekness really is another way of describing what the Bible calls the fear of God. So, boys and girls, what does that mean, the fear of God? Does that mean you are afraid of God? No, not really. But the fear of God means that we stand in awe of God. We esteem God. We stand in awe of His person. We stand in awe of His attributes. We stand in awe of His word. In other words, a God-fearing person is a person for whom God has become so very, very real so again, we see a remarkable progression in the Beatitudes. And I want to say again, congregation, what's striking about these Beatitudes, they are so entirely God-centered, all seven of them. And so in the first Beatitude, being poor in spirit, the focus is on the person of God. Because that's our poverty, our spiritual poverty is that we have lost God. We have lost God as our portion. The second Beatitude, blessed are they that mourn, the focus is on the law of God. And so the godly person grieves over the fact that we come short, that we disobey that law, that we transgress that law. So the person of God, the law of God, and here this focuses on the character of God, on the very attributes of God. All of which then culminates in a hungering and thirsting after what righteousness? The righteousness that God provides in His Son. Because that hungering and thirsting after righteousness is the yearning of a soul who longs to be reconciled with that God. The God we have lost in Adam. The God we have offended by our transgression. That God before whom we cannot stand in all of His greatness and majesty. Oh, there is a yearning of such a soul for that righteousness. That righteousness alone That can render me acceptable to God. That righteousness alone through which I can be restored into the favor of God. Because the yearning, the yearning of a living soul is after God himself. The living soul, the citizen of God's kingdom, is not a heaven seeker. The living citizen of God's kingdom is a God-seeker. It is God they yearn for. As a heart pens after the water brooks, so my heart pens after thee, O oh God. That's that hungering and thirsting. But you see, this, this disposition, this meekness, is such an essential aspect of this spiritual portrait. Because it is the meek person, who recognizes who God is. It's the meek person who understands what the implications are of his attributes. It's the meek person who understands that God is holy, infinitely holy, and that he can by no means clear the guilty. It's the meek person who takes his proper place before God. A congregation, again, that is so essential Not only that we realize how poor we are spiritually. Not only that we realize how grievously we have transgressed God's commandments. But we need to humble ourselves before God. We need to humble ourselves in the dust before God, considering who we are. That's what Psalm 130 is all about. Lord, if thou shouldst mark iniquity, who can stand before him? That's it. And the meek person understands that. You see, that's what brings us to the... That's what brings us to an end in ourselves. That's what makes us teachable. By nature, we are not teachable. By nature, we are offended by the gospel. We are offended by the gospel in its simplicity. A gospel that... Tells us that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That all of our righteousnesses are null and void in the sight of God. The gospel tells us that the cross of Christ puts a cross through all of our merits. All of our contributions. They are of no value in the sight of God. And we may, we may pay lip service to it. But it is the mighty work of God's Spirit to make us teachable, to bring us to that recognition that I have nothing, nothing that I can bring before Him, that I cannot stand before this glorious God. And a meek person realizes that. And don't think that we only need to learn that once. We need to learn that over and over and over again, over and over again. We have to come to that same conclusion. That I cannot stand before God as I am. And therefore that I need that Christ. That therefore I need His righteousness. That therefore I need to look to Him over and over and over again. Ultimately in every exercise of faith. These three, these three traits function. In every exercise of faith, it is that poverty of spirit, that mourning, and that humbling myself before God that brings me time and again to the blessed feet of Christ, to look to Him alone. I was impressed this week when I was reading, I'm reading right now Thomas Goodwin's commentary in Ephesians, and in one of his chapters he said, in every exercise of faith, our eye has to fall away completely. And that's what makes faith so difficult, even though it is so simple. Faith is as simple as looking at a brazen serpent. Faith is as simple as touching the hem of Christ's garment. And yet what makes it so difficult is that if we are truly honest, in every exercise of faith... We have to acknowledge afresh before God that we have nothing, nothing, nothing to lean upon, nothing to trust in. Our eye has to fall out of it. That's why Calvin calls faith, listen carefully, he calls it a humbling grace. That's what it is. Faith is a humbling grace. Nothing so will humble a man as the exercise of faith. That's what you see in Psalm 130. If thou shouldst mark iniquity, that's the confession of a meek man. If thou shouldst mark iniquity, who then can stand before thee? And then comes the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of the confession of faith, but even though I have nothing to show for except my sin and my iniquity, but with thee, with this awesome God, this majestic God, with thee, there is forgiveness that thou mayest be feared. And there you can see, congregation, true saving faith doesn't just come out of nowhere. And that's why I fear there are so many in Christianity whose faith is superficial. It's not real. You can tell it by their whole demeanor. It's because their faith is not born out of this. I want to emphasize again, I'm not suggesting that these marks somehow qualify us for faith. I'm not suggesting that. But I'm simply saying, real faith, saving faith, doesn't just happen. Saving faith comes out of a heart. In which these three things are real. Being poor in spirit. Mourning over sin. Humbling myself before God. That's why we find this mark manifested in so many of the saints. Because as I said, this is a a lifelong disposition. That meekness is a lifelong trait of the people of God. So let me give you some profound scriptural examples of that meekness. Of, of, of knowing, that's it. Remember, meekness means to know your proper place before God. Meekness is that disposition that recognizes God for who He is. And consequently, that recognizes who I am in the presence of that God. Listen to Abraham, the friend of God when he's pleading for his nephew Lot. Listen how we address God. Genesis 18, 27. I've taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. There's a man who recognizes who God is and who He is. Because congregation, as sinners... The only proper place for us is dust and ashes that's where we belong and abraham realized it moses moses we read in numbers 12 verse 3 now the man moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth he was not naturally meek he was a man with an explosive temper He was a man who killed the Egyptian and later in anger smote the rock when he should have spoken. And yet he was the meekest man on earth. Why? Because this man had been in the presence of God. This man had been summoned into the presence of God. And it was his acquaintance with God, his his interaction with God that so humbled him and made him a meek man made him realize who God was and who he was. Think of Job. Job, a man of whom God said that he was perfect and that he was a righteous man. God affirmed his godliness. And yet there was much that Job did not yet know about himself. And that God exposed through all of those trials and at the end, what does Job say? When God comes in his majesty, in the whirlwind, and when he begins to reveal himself to Job, and he begins to ask him all kinds of questions, Job says, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? And in chapter 42, verse 6, wherefore? Now he says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of my ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Same place as Abraham. How about Isaiah? That remarkable vision in the temple in Isaiah 6. When he sees a majestic display of God's glory. If you read that chapter. It is powerful what he sees. And when he, when he beholds the majesty and the glory of God. There's nothing else for him to say but this. Woe is made. For I am undone, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Meekness. How about Peter, Simon Peter, Luke 5, that first fishing miracle, when they've been fishing all night, and then Christ tells them to cast a net, and the net is so full that the net is breaking. And Peter realizes he's not just in the presence of a prophet, he's in the presence Of God himself. Peter is overwhelmed. When he sees the majesty of Christ. Displayed in a miracle. And Peter says. Peter who was so forward. Depart from me. For I am a sinful man O Lord. There you have it. Meekness. There is a man who saw himself. For who he really was. In the presence of God. How about Saul of Tarsus that proud, arrogant Pharisee... who thought so highly of himself... who said, I was once a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was on the very top of the Pharisees. Then he meets Christ. He meets the exalted Christ... on the way to Damascus. There's nothing left of his pride. There's nothing left of his arrogance. And he falls to the ground. and He says, Lord what will thou have me to do? That's meekness, you see. And last week we saw what John on the Isle of Patmos, a man who, who knew Christ so intimately, who had leaned upon his bosom. But When the exalted Christ appears to him on the Isle of Patmos in his overwhelming glory and majesty, we read about John, when I saw him, I fell as dead at his feet. You see, that's what true acquaintance with God will do. It will bring us in the dust before God. And congregation, as sinners, that's the only proper place for us to be. For it is only when we are in the dust before God, you see, that there is nothing left of myself and it's only there that I will look up and see a bleeding and dying Savior on the cross who died exactly for such a sinner as I am. It is precisely then that we are done with ourselves. And it's then that we hunger and thirst after Him and His righteousness. It is against that background that that Christ becomes so lovely, so precious, so suitable to my soul. That's why I said true faith doesn't just come out, does not function in a vacuum. True faith b- grows out of this disposition, you see. It comes out of that disposition. And I'm not saying that you have to have a certain measure of all of these things. That you have to be so poor. And that you have to mourn so much. That you have to weep so long. And that you have to be... So- I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about quantity here. I'm talking about qualities. Spiritual qualities. Qualities that are recognizable in the life of every believer. And therefore, I dare to say, if you don't recognize yourself in some measure in those opening beatitudes, then your faith is presumption. Your faith is not genuine. Your faith is not the faith of the citizens of God's kingdom. Because you see, only the meek will say amen, we'll say amen to who God is, and that's what faith is, when I believe in Christ, when I put my trust in Christ, when I embrace Him, I am saying amen to who God is, I'm saying amen to who I am in His sight, and I'm saying amen to that divine solution that is to be found in Christ alone, And then Christ becomes that key that fits my heart as precisely as a key fits a lock. It is the meek person. And the Spirit of God will bring us there time and again. It's the meek person who is a teachable person. Psalm 25 verse 9. The meek will he teach his way. There you have it. Psalm 61 verse 1. Isaiah 61, verse 1, the the passage that Christ quotes in Luke 4. The Lord has anointed me, listen carefully, to preach good tidings unto the meek. There you have it. To preach good tidings unto the meek. Isaiah 25, verse 9. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord. Psalm 147, verse 6. The Lord lifteth up the meek. Psalm 149, verse 4. For the Lord... And listen carefully, the Lord will beautify the meek with salvation. And this is a sampling, a sampling of passages from the Word of God. And as I already said before, this is a, a lifelong disposition. Not only is it something that produces faith, but it is also the fruit of faith. 1 Peter 3, verse 4. The ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. And so what is the evidence of that that meek disposition, that lifelong disposition? It is gentleness, patience, being forgiven, being content with who I am and where God has placed me. The more we have of this meekness, the less we will see of our wretched flesh. That's why we will see in a few weeks that it's only when we are meek, when we, have our, when we take our proper place before God, when we see ourselves the way God sees us, that we will be peacemakers. Because when we take our place before God in, in dust and ashes, gone is our arrogance. Gone is our brashness. Gone is all of that. And so the more we are in God's presence, the meeker we become. That's what happened to Moses. The more gentle we become, the more patient we become, the more kind we become, the more forgiving we become. And of course, the ultimate manifestation in congregation was in Christ Himself. Christ Himself. Christ said very little about his own character but he mentions meekness. Listen to what he says in Matthew eleven twenty nine: 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. He manifested perfect meekness. As the perfect man, he perfectly honored his heavenly Father. And we see it especially in the garden at the cross of Calvary. He so loved his Father. He so honored his Father that while the blood was dripping out of his pores in Gethsemane, he said, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. And he allowed himself to be nailed to the accursed cross. That's the ultimate manifestation of meekness. And so therefore, meekness is Christ-likeness. So when by grace we are united to Christ, then His character begins to manifest itself in our life. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be Christ-like. And this meekness is part of Christ-likeness. You see, this meekness is What George Steinberger, this wonderful German author, I think grasped so well in his masterful little book on what it means to follow Christ. On the opening page he says, on the cross, Christ took the lowest place. And if you are not willing to take the lowest place, you have not yet understood the cross. What a powerful statement. The congregation, sometimes we we talk humble. Especially when we grow up in an environment like ours, we can talk a good game. We can talk so humble. But are we? Are you willing to take the lowest place? That's what Steinberger meant. If you're not willing to take that lowest place, you have not yet understood the cross. That's meekness. That meekness will will flow out if the more we abide in Him, John 15, the more we abide in Him, the more we live in fellowship with Him, the more His grace flows out of Him into us, the more we will begin to resemble Him. Because from me is thy fruit found. And now you see the blessing that is promised to the meek is so fitting Because it says, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, they are the ones who give evidence that they truly love and adore the God of heaven. The meek are they for whom God has become their all and in all. Or to put it very simply, the meek are the lovers of God who love Him for who He is, who love Him in all of His attributes, who love Him in His majesty, in His glory. And the lovers of God, they shall inherit the earth. Again, we need to look at this in the context of Scripture. Because congregation, you know, boys and girls, you can understand that. That was Adam's inheritance. The earth was His inheritance. God placed Him on the earth, uniquely created and shaped by God for the benefit of His image-bearer. That's why in Genesis, the creation of man comes at the very end. And God first describes how He creates, not only in the universe, but how He shapes and molds our globe. He was preparing a dwelling place for a creature that he would create in his image. The earth was Adam's inheritance. And God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. I've given you the earth to bring out of that earth what I have put in it. And of course, when Adam and Eve fell, They lost their inheritance. They were banished from the presence of God. But what Christ is saying, that He came to be the Redeemer of sons and daughters of Adam. He came to be the repairer of the breach. He came to restore all that was lost in the fall. And so Christ is alluding to this that those who are poor in spirit, who mourn and who are meek, the the, the evidence of genuine spirituality. He said, they are my people. They are the citizens of my kingdom. And they will inherit the earth. And so Christ is promising here total restoration. And that's why. Why? the ultimate outcome of His redeeming work is not only the salvation of God's children, but there will come a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. And that's why the word world is significant. But it says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, to wit, to know that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. In Ephesians 1, we're told that in Christ, everything will come together. Everything will be restored in and through Him. A new heaven and a new earth. And that new earth will be the everlasting dwelling place of God's redeemed people. So we could say, blessed are the meek. For they shall be restored. They shall be fully restored. Oh, that new creation will be superior to the original creation. That new earth will be superior to the original earth. That new earth will be inhabited by God's redeemed people. It will be inhabited by lovers of God. That's what the meek are. That's why the meek are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. This earth, which groans under the curse of sin. And see, the ungodly want to inherit this earth. This earth is everything for them. So the ungodly want to get as much out of this earth as they possibly can. The ungodly, they lust for the riches of this earth... But the meek are strangers and pilgrims here below. Hebrews 11, verse 16. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly. And one of the reasons why Christianity has become so compromised in our country and in the West is because even God's people, we have become way too enamored with this earth and with all that this earth has to offer. That's why God sometimes has to use deep ways to wean us from this earth because this will not be our ultimate home. This cursed earth that groans under the burden of sin. All of creation groans, Paul tells us in Romans 8. No, we have a better country. We have a a future, a glorious future. We will inherit the earth, that new earth, in which righteousness will dwell. But you know what's so amazing? And we, we we would miss that. But the word Christ uses for inherit, listen very carefully. It means to receive an inheritance by lot. This is important, to receive an inheritance by lot. So boys and girls, what does that mean? So when the children of Israel inherited the land of Canaan, which is a a picture of, of the future that awaits God's people, when God leads them to the wilderness and brings them to Canaan, each family in Israel received a portion of that promised land. And how did they receive it? By lot. So that meant every Israelite, when they dwelt on their acreage, they knew, I dwell on this acreage. Because God determined that this would be my portion. By lot. And you know, the casting of the lot was important in Bible times. They believed wholeheartedly that the casting of the lot is ours, but the disposal of it is God's. That's why Naboth refused to give up his, his vineyard when Ahab wanted to buy it from him. Nahab was a God-fearing man. He knew that his vineyard was God's portion given to him. He knew he had received his portion by lot. So every Israelite knew that his acreage was the sovereign gift of Israel's God. Joshua 14, verse 2, says exactly that. By lot was their inheritance. Now, dear believer, now the application. Why will you inherit the earth? Why will your portion once be on that new earth? Why? Because the lot has fallen upon you. That's why. Eternally, the lot has fallen upon you. That will be God's sovereign gift to you. And so this excludes all human merit. This excludes all human boasting. And dear child of God, if you, if you recognize yourself in this portrait, it is because God has dealt sovereignly with you. Sovereignly, the lot has fallen upon you. You are what you are. Because of God's sovereign good pleasure. All boasting is excluded. All human merit is excluded. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 12. In whom, that is in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance. Being predestined according to the purpose of Him. An inheritance. And you see. The meek are the ones who understand the wonder of it. The meek are the ones who understand how unworthy they are. The meek are the ones who understand that they have forfeited the right to God's favor. The meek are the ones who see themselves as God sees them. The meek are the ones who marvel at the grace of God, the sovereign, distinguishing grace of God. And they will inherit the earth. They will receive that lot, that inheritance, because of God's sovereign good pleasure. You see what a beautiful doctrine election is when we put it in its proper biblical context. And the meek will forever marvel throughout all eternity. They will worship this God who purposed to cast a lot upon them. This God who has eternally, dear dear believer, if you love this Christ who is preaching here to us, if you love this Christ, if your heart is drawn to Him, if He is altogether lovely to you, if He has become precious to you, that has its origin in eternity, you have been chosen in Christ. You have been given to Christ. You have been redeemed by Christ. You have been drawn to Christ. You have been united to Christ. You're being conformed to Christ, to be forever with Christ. Why? Because the lot has fallen upon you. All boasting is excluded. The meek shall inherit the earth 1 Peter 1 verse 4, he he alludes to this. He says, to an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. Oh, dear child of God, there is a reservation for you in heaven. that has your name on it. And why is your name on it? Why yours? Because God has, it has eternally pleased God to make you the recipient of His grace. The lot has fallen upon you. That's why we read in Matthew 25, how will Christ welcome the meek into His presence? Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That means from all eternity. That's it. That's what makes this so beautiful. Oh, you see how it all fits together. How marvelously it fits together. You see again how, how unsearchable the depths are of these beatitudes. We're just scratching the surface. The living word here describes for us with remarkable precision, with remarkable theological depth. He pres- and yet in such simple language. Who His people are. That's why the meek, they will forever sing, Thou art, O God, the boast of our power. They will forever magnify this God. They will forever say, Lord, it is through Thee, through Thee alone, because of Thy eternal good pleasure. The meek, Shall inherit the earth? Will we belong to them, boys and girls? Will you inherit the earth? First Corinthians fifteen verse fifty: Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And by nature we are flesh and blood. By nature we are ungodly. By nature we live the force from God. But thanks be to God, there is still room in that inheritance. Thanks be to God that that inheritance is still offered in the gospel. Thanks be to God that this Christ stand before us, and he proffers to us peace and pardon. That this Christ declares, there is yet room also by me. And don't let the doctrine of election discourage you. Spurgeon rightly said that election is the friend of sinners. And the reason we are here, the reason this congregation exists, the reason why we proclaim the gospel to you is because God is still in the business of gathering sinners into that inheritance. If it were not for that sovereign good pleasure, there's not a single human being that would ever ask for God. There's not a single human being that would seek after God. Heaven would be an empty place. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to that eternal, sovereign good pleasure. As a result of which, that new earth will be populated by the meek, by the lovers of God. And woe unto us. If we neglect so great a salvation, woe unto us! If we refuse to bow before this Christ, woe unto us! If in our pride and arrogance we remain who we are, because your inheritance will be hell, then the same Christ who welcomes his people, he will say to you, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and for His angels. And so, my dear congregation, who am I? Who are you? Who are you? Do you recognize yourself in this portrait? Believer, you who profess the name of Christ, is meekness the ornament of your life? Colossians 3, verse 12, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, meekness. Ephesians 4, verse 1 and 2. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness. That's It's meekness. The ornament of our lives. That's why. In order for us to be fruitful... We need to be in Christ. We need to abide in Him. That's why Jesus so lovingly urges us, stay with me, my child. Stay with me. Don't go it alone. Stay with me. Abide with me. Abide in my person. Abide in my wounds. Abide in my word. Abide in my promises. Abide with me. Stay with me. Walk with me. Live in fellowship with me. Because the more we do, the more fruit we will bear. That's what he promised. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. That's why he said, without me you can do nothing. One of the most misquoted passages of the Bible, taken entirely out of its context. What did Jesus mean by that? Did he mean to hand you an excuse for doing nothing? No. He simply means So, so what what he has said positively, he, he then states negatively. So, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For without me, that means without abiding in me, you cannot bear fruit. Therefore, abide in me and you will bear fruit. That was the purpose of the statement. He simply underscored negatively what he had just stated positively. Abide in me. For your fruit, he said in Hosea. Your fruit is found in me. That's John 15. That's your congregation. When it's all said and done at the end of the ages, what will be the doxology of the meek? Turn with me to, to Revelation 5. Revelation five, with that we will end. Revelation five. The doxology of the meek, verses 9 and 10. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And listen carefully. And has made us, even us, unto our God, kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we humbly thank Thee for the instruction we received from Thy Word. And Lord, we recognize that our understanding is so primitive. Oh, what we need ongoing and continued instruction. Oh, Holy Spirit, teach us the profound truths couched in these simple words. We pray, Lord, that this would be to the encouragement of those in our midst who by grace recognize in some measure these traits which are not found in men by nature, but which are the evidences of that renewing work of thy Spirit. And so we pray that those in our midst who are poor in spirit, who mourn over sin, who are meek, who take their proper place before God in dust and in ashes, and who hunger and thirst after Christ and his righteousness, that even today, they might be filled to overflowing. And Lord, give us no rest until we may know that we too belong to the citizens of thy kingdom, lest we perish forever. When the Christ who now stands before us proffering peace and pardon will then condemn us to that place that is prepared for all those who had no desire after thee or the knowledge of thy ways. Oh, remember us the remainder of this day. Bless thy work; Let it have an abiding influence in us. And gather with us in this evening hour. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.